0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Hungry for History. Today I'm going to be talking about a period of U.S. history that you'll probably never learn about in class. This is what's commonly called the public enemy era, a part of the Great Depression that was dominated by gangsters and bank robbers all over the country. This eventually led to the rise and development of the FBI, and I'll talk about that a little bit. And the most famous gangsters to come out of this era are Bonnie and Clyde. I'm going to talk about Bonnie and Clyde, and I'm also going to talk about all of the fine gentlemen who the FBI, or its predecessor, which was just called the Bureau of Investigation, ever named public enemy number one. The public enemy era is basically 1931 to 1934. So the Great Depression had started in 1929, and this was about the worst it got. So some people kept their options open and decided to turn to crime in order to make money, feed their families, or just, you know, have a good time. Specifically, bank robbery was very common in this era, and that's how Bonnie and Clyde made most of their money. The term public enemy, which isn't very nice, was first used to describe Al Capone, the very famous Chicago mobster who was imprisoned and caught in 1931. After that, it was used to describe a lot of criminals who basically caused the government a bunch of trouble. Bonnie and Clyde were never named Public Enemies number 1, but they were named Public Enemies. Bonnie Parker was born in 1910, she's from Texas, and when she was 15 she married a guy named Roy Thornton. Their marriage didn't really go anywhere, he was 17, she was 15, so they were really young. But they never divorced, though they didn't see each other much after a couple of years. When she met Clyde, she met him in 1930, so she was 20, he was 21. Keep in mind that during this era where they were, you know, very famous bank robbers, they were really young, they were in their early 20s, and that's true for most of the public enemies of this era. Clyde's middle name is Chestnut, I just wanted to share that because I think it's pretty silly. The first time Clyde was arrested, he was 17. He was from a poor family, and he and his older brother Buck got into crime at a very young age. So Bonnie and Clyde met in 1930 in West Dallas, which is a rough neighborhood in Dallas. You could say it was love at first sight. After only a few weeks, Clyde ended up in prison again for auto theft, but they still stayed in touch and stayed together for the rest of their lives. Clyde cut off two of his toes while he was in prison to avoid hard labor in the fields. He really, really, really hated the Texas prison system. He thought it had abused him, and he was probably right, and he decided while he was in prison that he wanted revenge on law enforcement. So he met a lot of the guys who would become part of his gang, which was eventually called the Barrow Gang, for Clyde Barrow, while he was in prison. So I said earlier that he cut off two of his toes to avoid hard labor. That was true, and it worked, except that his mother had applied for him to be released early. So only six days after chopping off his toes, he was released from prison. So I assume he had some regrets there. After Clyde was released from prison, he formed the Barrow Gang, and they started robbing banks. Bonnie was along for this whole ride she was helping out, too. This is not something that was super-gendered here. During the course of their robberies, Bonnie and Clyde's Barrow gang did kill civilians and police officers. They definitely weren't great people. They were not upstanding citizens. And you can understand why law enforcement hated them so much. In 1933, Clyde's older brother, Buck Barrow, was released from prison. And he and his wife, whose name was Blanche, joined the Barrow gang. Locally, they were pretty famous in the Midwest for all of their robberies among law enforcement. They got really famous all across the country after April 1933. They were chilling in Joplin, Missouri, the police showed up, and there was a shootout. The gang suffered only minor injuries, but two officers died. The gang had to abandon their hideout, and what they left behind was a camera that had a lot of undeveloped photos. Bonnie also left behind some poems she'd written. The police developed the photos, sent them to national papers, and they became really, really, really famous. They showed Clyde and all the members of the gang, but especially Bonnie, posing with guns and cigars. And this got crazy in the press, it totally blew up, because I guess you can be feminine while you're robbing banks and everything, but a woman smoking a cigar? You can't have that. Funnily enough, in real life, Bonnie didn't actually even smoke cigars. She was just posing with guns and cigars for the photos. But because she was toting a cigar in these photos, she blew up all over the national press for being so anti-feminine. For a while, the press made them pretty popular. But unfortunately, the Barrow gang had the unfortunate tendency to shoot anybody who got in their way. So the public opinion gradually turned against them. They were super famous at this point. It was hard to hide and camping and living in their car was about the best they could do while they were on the run. In June of 1933, the car that the gang was driving flipped into a ravine. A fire started somewhere in the engine. I don't know anything about mechanics, so I have no idea how, but the end result was that Bonnie was badly burned and limped for a long time. The next month, police showed up to a hideout in Missouri and opened fire on the gang without warning. The gang eventually escaped in their car, but Buck's wife, Blanche, got glass in her eyes and was nearly blinded, and Buck had a gaping wound in his forehead by the time they drove away. So things weren't going well physically for the band. They were being relentlessly hunted by law enforcement. They camped then in Idaho, with Buck's brain falling out. Clyde ended up digging him a grave, but the gang was recognized because of their bloody bandages by public who were surrounding their campsite and law enforcement showed up pretty soon after that. Bonnie and Clyde escaped on foot. Bonnie had recovered enough from her burns to get away, but law enforcement shot Buck in the back. I mean, come on, the guy's brain is literally falling out of his forehead and you're going to shoot him again? But they captured him and his wife. Buck died five days later, and Blanche was in custody for a few years. Bonnie and Clyde by themselves chilled on the run for a few months. They were meeting up with other members of their gang who were basically old prison friends. One time they tried to visit Clyde's family in Texas, but waiting officers who had staked out the place started shooting at them unprovoked, hitting their legs. They did escape, but again, they were injured. Now, funnily enough, gangsters were totally family guys. They visited family a lot. This is true for Bonnie and Clyde, and it's also true about a lot of the public enemy number one gangsters that I'm going to talk about soon. So, because they visited families so much, that's one of the ways law enforcement decided to track them. They managed to catch several gang members this way, and that's how Bonnie and Clyde were eventually caught. On May 21st, 1934, the Bureau of Investigation, which was the predecessor to the FBI, and you can honestly call it the FBI for our purposes because it eventually turned into that, set up outside the family of Henry Methvin, who was a guy in the Barrow gang. They'd tracked the movements of the gang and figured out that they visited family members of gang members, sort of on a rotating schedule, so they figured Henry was next. They camped there on May 21st, May 22nd, nobody showed up. May 23rd, they saw Bonnie and Clyde's car, and they just opened fire on it. God knows who could have been in it, fortunately, I guess, you could say. It was just Bonnie and Clyde. And the officers who were there fired 130 bullets into the car. So Bonnie and Clyde were very, very, very dead after this. They had no opportunity to respond, no opportunity to try to escape or surrender or turn themselves in. They were just mobbed down with bullets. Now, you could say they deserved it, but as I continue with this episode, you're going to notice a pattern of the FBI ambushing and basically murdering suspected criminals without giving them any kind of due process or a trial. Bonnie and Clyde were 23 and 25 when they died. After they got Bonnie and Clyde, the FBI decided to start naming other gangsters of the era Public Enemy number 1, which meant that the biggest manhunts in the country would be focused on whoever was named Public Enemy number 1. There were four people who were ever named public enemy number one. I guess it was a title of honor that was reserved for only the very worst. And it wasn't used again after 1934. I would argue that 1934 was one of the most influential years for law enforcement in the history of the development of law enforcement in the United States because of this public enemy era and the way that the FBI developed and the style that they used to track down and eliminate criminals. The first person to ever be named Public Enemy Number 1 was John Dillinger, who's a very famous gangster. You may have heard of him. He's probably the most famous person who was ever named Public Enemy Number 1. He was born in 1903, and he died in 1934, as did basically everybody else. In 1923, he was dishonorably discharged from the Navy for deserting, and basically at that point he gave up on trying to do anything that was legal. He was in prison from 1924 to 1933 for assault and battery. And he said while he was in prison, and I quote, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. And he was, honestly. He hated prison. Um, While he was in prison, he was treated for gonorrhea, and I don't think he found that very pleasant. And he basically learned to be a criminal from the other more experienced criminals he associated with. Kind of like Clyde Barrow. He became very bitter with the United States. When John Dillinger got out of prison in 1933, he became a bank robber. He formed his own gang, it was called the Dillinger Gang. It became notorious and famous, and he robbed twelve banks before he was captured. He was captured in January of 1934, um, and he was taken to Lake County Jail, which is in Crown Point, Indiana, which I've never heard of, but maybe if you're from Indiana you know where that is. Lake County Jail was famous for being escape-proof, and it had extra guards posted when Dillinger showed up there. Um, Escaping the jail took him less than two months. He possibly did it by either smuggling in a real gun, or carving a really convincing one out of some wood. Either way, he made it out, and around this time, the police and the bureau started just shooting up any gangster they saw, or thought they saw, in the hopes that it was one of the prolific public enemy gang leaders. When he escaped from prison, John Dillinger linked up with Babyface Nelson, who I'll talk about later, and they formed the new Dillinger gang. In April of 1934, the Bureau arrested Dillinger's wife, Billy Frechette, and he never saw her again. He basically disappeared after that. Law enforcement had no idea where he went. After Bonnie and Clyde died, he was officially named public enemy number one, so he was really careful to stay out of sight had no sign of him until July. He'd gone to Chicago, which by accident was the center of the dragnet where the police were looking for mobsters, whoopsie, but even though he went to Chicago, it took them a while to find him. The reason for that is that Dillinger had gotten plastic surgery in May of 1934. He'd burned off the tips of his fingers with acid so that he couldn't leave fingerprints on anything, and he'd also changed his face with surgery. Now, he did do this in 1934, with a so-called plastic surgeon who was really just another ex-con, so the medical safety of these procedures were totally questionable. The doctor actually gave him too much ether, which was an early form of general anesthesia, and he almost choked to death on his own tongue during surgery. But ultimately, he did survive, and he had a new face. Dillinger's friend Homer Van Meter, who was one of the gangsters who he learned from, who also knew Clyde Barrow, got the same procedure, and agents shot Homer Van Meter dead in an alley in August. Before that, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the bureau and in charge of these public enemy task forces, and eventually the first director of the FBI, made a special task force just to find and kill John Dillinger. The task force didn't find Dillinger, but they did find a prostitute named Anna, who had employed Polly Hamilton, a girl who Dillinger was dating. Anna realized that if she got this reward, she was from Romania, but if she got this reward for turning in Dillinger, she would be in a much better position to keep her green card visa and not have to leave the country. So she stabbed him in the back. He got stabbed in the back and betrayed by a prostitute. And that's how the bureau that eventually became the FBI found him. He and his girlfriend, Polly, were having date night at the movie theater. Yes, by the way, he was still married to the imprisoned Billy Frechette. But he and his girlfriend, Polly, were having a date night. They were watching a Clark Gable film. And when the movie was over, Dillinger walked out, realized there were agents around, and ran for an alley to try to make a getaway, but it was too late. Agents shot him four times. They also shot two bystanders, because when you just randomly fire at somebody without caring who's around, you will also hurt other people. So John Dillinger was killed on July 22, 1934. The next Public Enemy number 1 was named the very next day, on July 23rd. His name was Charles Arthur Floyd, but he was called Pretty Boy Floyd, because I guess he was gorgeous. I don't know, I'd recommend looking it up and deciding for yourself. I think he kind of looks like a frat guy. He was 30 years old when he was named Public Enemy number 1. Pretty Boy Floyd was a gangster. He was suspected of being behind a gunfight, which was called the Kansas City Massacre, that had left four officers dead, which is why law enforcement wanted him so badly. Historians, though, and modern law enforcement think that he may not have been involved with that shooting at all, but that was all the ammunition J. Edgar Hoover needed to basically order a hit on Pretty Boy Floyd, and the proto-FBI caught up to him and shot him on October 22nd, 1934, in a cornfield in Ohio. So he died age 30. I may have mentioned this earlier, but John Dillinger was the oldest guy who they tracked down and shot, and he was only 31. So these are young adults who are committing crimes, being named public enemy number one, and then being taken out. The next public enemy number one was a guy named Lester Joseph Gillis. Lester is a terrible name for a gun-toting gangster, so he came up with a new one. He went by George Nelson. He was called Jimmy to his face, which is also not a nickname for George or Lester or Josephs. I don't know where that came from. But because he looked young and sweet, behind his back he was called Babyface Nelson. He'd been part of John Dillinger's gang, and when Dillinger died, he basically took it over. He was mean, and he was scary, and he killed more cops than any other gangster of this era. So he was feared and hated. The FBI did not take very long to track him down after killing Pretty Boy Floyd. They staked out an old hideout of his in Wisconsin and caught up to him on November 27th. The gunfight that ensued on November 27th was called the Battle of Barrington, which is a very dramatic name, but it was definitely violent. At the end, Nelson was dead, and so were two FBI agents. He didn't actually die on the scene. He got shot in the stomach, took his revenge on the agents by aiming better than them, and booked it out of there. He went to a safe house, And in the safe house, he died a few hours later with his wife at his side. The FBI launched an angry manhunt for his wife afterward, and she spent a year in prison for the short time she harbored him after the battle. They really hated this guy. When they killed him, he was 25 years old. They did name one more public enemy number one. The last guy they named public enemy number one was a similar gangster named Alan Karpis. He's the only public enemy number one who wasn't killed by police. He was caught, of course, but instead of being killed on sight, he served the longest time of anyone in history at Alcatraz Prison. So let's talk for a little bit about J. Edgar Hoover. He was the president of the Bureau of Investigation, which preceded the FBI, from 1924 onward. He was the guy who was in charge of the manhunts for these public enemies. And in 1935, when the FBI, as we know it today, was officially created, he was named the first director, and he served until he died in 1972. Later on in his career, he got slammed for abusing the power of the FBI. We're talking illegal evidence collection, stalking political figures, threatening and intimidating activists, going outside of the FBI's jurisdiction, all that good stuff. Definitely he threatened some presidents into doing what he wanted. But anyway, he lost a lot of faith in the end of his career because he did a lot of crappy stuff while he was in charge of the FBI. But I think, personally, that he was bloodthirsty and a bit evil from the beginning. And I think that really the entire beginning of the FBI was constitutionally an abuse of power and kind of gross. So I think he should have gotten in trouble before that. Like, yes, these were criminals who caused a lot of deaths but it's pretty crazy how many gangsters the FBI killed in 1934. There's a whole bunch of other more minor, less famous ones who I didn't even mention who they also ambushed and murdered. Each time they tracked down and opened fire on a gangster, they skipped about half the Bill of Rights, and they also shot a lot of innocent bystanders this way. Now, FBI, if you're listening to this podcast, I am no bank robber. I promise, I don't think bank robbing is cool, I don't think killing police officers is cool, but I am a fan of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, which is why I make this point. Looking at history means criticizing those in power. Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, Babyface Nelson, they should all have spent their lives in prison for all that they did. But I really don't think that robbing some banks and getting into shootouts means that anybody deserves to not have a chance to stand trial and to be shot 130 times in front of their dad's house. That's all I'm saying here. So the beginning of the FBI was a very bloody, you know, questionable, still morally debated period. And the bank robbers and the gangsters, they were bad, but yeah, they were kind of cool. I totally recommend reading up more about this because there's so much to learn about the public enemy era. It was really influential in the United States. It changed the way newspapers wrote about crime. It changed the way law enforcement tracked down criminals. And, of course, it led to the beginning of the FBI, which is a hugely important part of our government today. You'll find more information about the public enemy era, the creation of the FBI, and the bank robbers of the Great Depression on my website, hungryforhistory.net. And next week, I'll have another episode out, and we're going to be starting this podcast's first ever set of themed episodes. We're going to be looking at some of the really great and not commonly talked about women of history. And I'm really excited. We're going to be starting with ancient Egypt, but I promise it isn't just Cleopatra. Can't wait to see you then. I'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks so much for listening.